Hello and welcome back to Stern Chats, a podcast that explores the untold stories of the NYU Stern community. My name is Ethan Singh, and today we have an update on the beloved episode where Stern Chats sat down with Tara Hankinson, the co-founder of Talea Beer Co., to discuss how she started her company in the midst of a pandemic. We're going to begin by following up with Tara on how things have been going on at Talea over the last two years, and then we'll be re-airing this Stern Chats classic. Talea has had a really interesting journey. It's a pioneering beer company that started with only one location in Williamsburg and now has expanded into a second location with a potential third on the way. It's been an amazing journey to see Talea beer in my local Trader Joe's and now to see the brand expand across New York. Hope you enjoy this episode. Tara, welcome back to the Stern Chats podcast. We really appreciate you updating us on your continued journey as a founder at Talea. Last time we spoke to you was all the way back in November 2020 with a completely different crew. All those folks have graduated and are gone now. And you were gearing to open up the Williamsburg flagship tap room. We're two years later. You have a second location in Cobble Hill. I'm starting to see Talea beer in my local grocery stores like Trader Joe's. Could you tell us a bit in your own words what the journey's been like over the past couple of years? Yeah, thanks for having me, Ethan. It is wild to think that we talked or I talked to the, the podcast hosts at the time two years and three months ago because we hadn't even opened our first brick and mortar space and we were in the throes of it at that point i was about to give birth to my first kids twins which were born in early november or maybe i'd just given birth it's all a blur we were in the middle of building out our 9,000 square foot brewery and tap room in williamsburg and you know, frankly, we ended up opening in March 2021. We had no idea if anyone would even come to the brewery. We do our brewing there, and then we also have the tap room component. So it, there were a lot of unknowns. At that point, we had been selling beer for a little over a year and a half in New York City. We had secured shelf space at Whole Foods, and we were in about 150 other bars, restaurants, and retailers. Things are really different now in a great way. It's been a very intense two years. I also just had another kid. So, you know, I've been creating a lot of babies in the meantime. we got the brewery and tap room open in Williamsburg. We have our second location, Cobble Hill, which opened in June last year. We also had a summer long pop-up at Grand Central from May to early November. Uh, so at one point last year, we had three locations going. And this year we have two more locations opening in Manhattan. So by the end of 2023, we'll have four brick and mortar locations operating. Um, and we've more than quadrupled the amount of beer that we brewed uh, compared to 2020, even more than that. But comparing 2022 to 2021, we've at least tripled. So it's been really exciting, very intense. And uh, fortunately, we're in a much different position both as a more established company, but also just the climate in craft beer, the climate in New York, being in a more recovered COVID mindset is is great. So we're, we're gearing up for an exciting 2023. I love it. You know, life isn't like a single tone note. I think it's easy to think with business school, how's my career going to go? It's going to be something very straightforward, like an arrow, but it's really not. It's a bunch of spirals in different directions, hopefully upward. What do you think the biggest challenge has been? Was it, do you think it came from being a founder? Did you think it came from being a founder and a mother of twins and now another child? Where do you think the, what do you think the biggest challenge was balancing personal life or, or business life? 
I don't want to sound like a cliche, but I do think that as valuable as my Stern education was, you can't get more than one MBA degree. And the type of MBA that I would go back and get now being another, oh Jesus, 10 years <laughs> later in my career, I started business school in 2013, graduated 2015. So now 2023, the type of MBA I would get now, it would be very different. It would be much more focused on the people side of things, probably not the financials because my business partner and co-founder handles the financials and she's great at it. But I think I would be focused on the softer skills. And so at Stern, I was focused on more of the practical classes of how to learn skills, how to apply them. And the most challenging thing for me over the last two years or two and a half years has been the softer side, finding the right people, how to motivate a team, how to manage the politics within your organization and outside of your organization. And as a career changer, when I entered Stern, I was coming from a nonprofit world and trying to shift in, into consulting. I kind of what the classes in change management or power and politics just didn't feel relevant to me because I had never been in a role in a job where those skills really felt applicable. I had come from a very junior position at a nonprofit foundation. And so change management, I had never really struggled with managing someone or going through a significant change. Now, I mean, change management is every day of my life when I'm not on parental leave. So that's what's been a big growing point or a growth part of our growth as a business. And I think something valuable to consider for students who don't expect to be in a lifetime in one role, being in a startup or at a growing organization, it's, it's much more dynamic and those softer skills really come into play. Oh, I think it's great advice because most of us are starting to realize, especially when you get into your second year, that our careers won't be linear and that these soft skills are way more important than you can expect. That's probably the one thing every single alumni I've met from Stern has told me. Be sure to know those things. If you need to know finances and you do bank or consulting, you'll figure it out on the job. But everything else, you learn at Stern and it's, you could do it in a safe space. Did you have a favorite class from Stern that you still find is super useful? I think the two, one of which I might've mentioned, Oaken's Managing Growing Companies, because it builds a framework for how to evaluate decisions and how impactful those can be for small companies. When we spoke in November, 2020, we were a three, a four person team, including my co-founder and me. And now we have over 60 employees, not all full-time, but still 60 people. Incredible. Um, and so thank you. But we're definitely in the growing company stage now. We're not just a small business. And uh, I love that class. I also loved Euromax mergers and acquisitions because it touches on the legal side of things as well as more of the politics. Like why would you build a golden parachute or a poison pill into right. a plan for, you know, whatever sort of M&A activities you're doing. And as a company, you know, fortunately we don't, because my co-founder and I are the majority shareholders and we are the board, which is a very great position to be in considering we've gone through two rounds of funding. I still think learning from companies who are bigger than us is a huge 
it's a huge advantage that we have because we don't think of ourselves as a brewery. We think of ourselves as a startup. So those kind of classes, while they might seem like an M&A class might seem more finance oriented, it goes back to the power in politics and policies that you can put in place to protect yourselves and protect your business. For sure. And I love how you guys describe yourself as a startup because you're very disruptive in the space, in my opinion, at least. I love the position you take in the marketplace. It's very unique and and it's historic. It's ground setting. You both are the two first women-owned brewery in New York. It's incredible. We're in a really interesting time in the CNR alcoholic beverages space where alcohol spirit sales have for the first time surpassed beer in America. Uh, what do you? But what do you see as the most important trend in beer going forward this year and into the next few years? In a philosophical sense, I think listening to your customers is the most important trend. I think a lot of big beer companies have a lot of momentum in the direction they're going and aren't pausing to ask why or should we. You can see that with companies redoing their flagship beer, but not necessarily looking at what I would say is the the trend setting aspects of the the industry, looking at what craft the big companies aren't necessarily looking at what craft beer is doing, um, but even craft beer companies, I think trends like low alcohol, non alcoholic, gluten free, they could be just a trend and go away, or they could be here to stay. And the only way we'll know is by testing it, trying it, and listening to our customers. So that's uh, one of the main things that we are able to do with great agility because we have our physical space. We can make a small batch of something, see how it sells. We can can it and, and put it out into the market through our wholesale network once and see how it goes. We read reviews. We talk to our customers. We have a high-touch hospitality experience. So it allows us to iterate pretty quickly and I think that is what, you know, customers have so much power and they're also part of the reason why we do this, right? So, of course. Um, but yeah, that's, I'll leave it at that. No, it's a good answer. I mean, if you have no customers, you also have no business. <laughs> so that's, that, that's, I fully agree. Don't think the beer industry is listening enough to their customers, which I'm glad there's disruptors like you in the space for. A final question for you now, looking down the road, you guys have been growing pretty fast. So I want to know what's the big dream? Where do you guys see Talea Beer going down 10 years, 15 years, 20 years down the road? I'll start with the next two years, which is sure. dominating <laughs> uh, New York City. So we have one lease signed for a West Village location that will probably be opening around Labor Day this year. Another lease we're about to sign for a location I won't disclose, but also in Manhattan. And the plan over the next two years is to build those two and hopefully one other tap room, either in New York city or New York city area. The plan for 2025 and beyond is to establish ourselves as the predominant winning female first brewery in the country. And we still have a lot of research to do and soul searching to do on what that exactly means. But one of the most Obvious ways we may do that is by replicating the model we have now in other metropolitan areas. So we have our hub brewery with tap rooms with a tap room attached to it, and then have other tap rooms within that same, well, in New York City, it's within the five boroughs, but we could do the same thing and replicate that in other metropolitan areas where we feel our concept would work. And because of 
who we are. We believe our concept could work in a lot of different oh, geographies. Oh, so true. I could totally so, see this all over the West Coast as well. Yeah, I think West Coast, I think we would love to try our beer in more year-round warm areas just because I think that we're curious about drinking behaviors in other states. Um, we're really happy with how our beer has been doing on the wholesale front. And that's a whole other strategy beyond the brick and mortar. But we're also investing a lot of time and effort into creating the Talea experience, which for us means continuing to build on the lifestyle component of our brand. And lifestyle is such a, maybe it's even a dated buzzword, but for us, that means being more than just a brewery. So whether it's like this past Sunday, we had a photographer doing portraits, power portraits of women for self-care Valentine's Day on Sunday. I love it. We have movie Monday nights. We have taproom yoga at both of our taprooms every weekend. Uh, we have kids sing-alongs at our Williamsburg taproom. But all of those ways in which we can become more of people's lives than just when they're looking to crack a beer open. And we, it's fine if all you want to do is <laughs> buy our beer at Trader Joe's or Whole Foods and drink it. That's great too. But we found that people gravitate towards our spaces for more than just getting drunk. And that's why we open <laughs> in the morning so you can come do your work with us, get a coffee at one of our locations, and then um, you know continue the day there and use our free Wi-Fi. So <laughs> we have a lot of plans to continue to build connections with our customers in that way. I love it. I love all of this. This all sounds amazing. And I can't wait for one day we have a stern social at one of your locations. Tara, thanks so much for that. Yeah, we've had a lot of stern events or, or NYU in general events at our tap rooms, and we would love to host you all. But it's been great recapping and going down memory lane a bit. Oh, I'm glad you came on the podcast. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Ethan. Awesome. Welcome back to another episode of Stern Chats. I'm Melanie Gonzalez. And I'm Tiffany Lynn. Today, Tiffany and I are speaking with Tara Hankinson, co-founder of Talea Beer Company, a New York-based brewing company that the New York Times described as easy drinking beers, perhaps to replace that glass of rosé. She's doing something really unique in the brewing scene. We're also proud to say that she is an NYU Stern MBA alum, graduating class of 2015, and recently named one of Time Out New York's Women of the Year. So let's kick things off. From New York University Stern campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. Tara, Tiffany and I are so excited to have you on the show. Thank you for being here with us. Thank you, Melanie and Tiffany. I'm really excited to chat. Yeah, I'm really excited about this conversation. Um, so kind of to kick us off, uh, we always like to start at the very beginning with our guests. Um, <laughs> what were you like as a child? Uh, what were you like growing up? That's very far back. <laughs> um, I So I was raised in Pennsylvania by New Yorkers. So my father <laughs> grew up on uh, 93rd and Lexington his whole life, like played 
baseball in the streets because he didn't know what it was like to live in the suburbs. Um, and my mom grew up in Westchester County and uh, they both started their careers in the hospitality business. They actually met working at the Playboy Club um, when I was on 59th and 5th. Uh, my mom was post-college and trying to make money. So she was a Playboy bunny waitress, uh, a cocktail waitress. <laughs> and my dad was on his senior year college break and my grandfather was a concert pianist, so he was very well connected to the hospitality and food and beverage world and got my job, my dad a job as a bartender. So um, needless to say, <laughs> college was not as interesting as being a bartender at the Playboy Club. So my dad actually finished up his degree here in New York City um, and started dating my mom a couple of months later. So I, um, my family relocated from... New York City area to Pennsylvania when I was seven. And I always grew up with this presence of food, wine, and hospitality in my life because, um, because that's how they, you know, launched their careers in New York City when they were uh, my age or even younger than me. Um, and yeah, personality wise, um, I, you know, I think looking back, it's interesting trying to find the threads that are consistent in your life. And I see a lot of entrepreneurial tendencies or managerial tendencies in, in their own way. Um, I'm the eldest of three children and I'm definitely most, the most bossy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I did a lot of activities. Um, I was a horseback rider, which is obviously very independent. And then in high school, I was a coxswain for a rowing team. So basically steering the boat and motivating all of the rowers during um, races and workouts. And, you know, those, even though those are two very different sports, um, they pull from the same sort of need to have confidence and direction and um, an ability to, you know, connect with whether it's your horse or eight people who are literally have their backs to the direction they're going and have complete trust in you. Um, so that was, it was, I, I liked growing up in Pennsylvania. I actually stayed in Pennsylvania for college. I almost went to Stern undergrad, but I wasn't quite ready for New York city. Um, so that's, um, that's me as a pre, I guess now that I'm in the beer business, pre <laughs> age, <laughs> person. <laughs> yeah, that's that's amazing. Do you think you were also very entrepreneurial as a child too? Kind of, I mean, you talked about your independence and kind of yeah, being bossy. I actually like when we own that we're bossy. Um, do you think you're also <laughs> very entrepreneurial? Uh, yeah, I don't know if my siblings would agree with bossy being a good quality, but uh, <laughs> but you know, in my own way, but I also grew up with a very strong fear of authority that I think carried over. I was a very well-behaved child, never um, rebelled or, or disagreed with my parents, you know, would cry if I was reprimanded by a teacher. And I think that um, hinders some of your comfort with risk. So I think I had 
a desire to be creative and entrepreneurial in that way, but a fear of rejection that hindered me, um, you know, probably until post Stern when I had enough confidence to really put myself in vulnerable positions and to handle rejection better. So I did things like sell horse treats at horse shows, um, you know, took an entrepreneurship class in high school, which is pretty avant-garde looking back on it. But I didn't, um, you know, I didn't have that much autonomy or desire to put myself in a vulnerable place. I wasn't going door to door selling, I don't know, Girl Scout cookies or anything like that. (laughs) And so that was, you know, pre-adult, uh, you had all this exposure to the hospitality industry. So once you were 21 um, and you were exposed to actually be able to drink beer, wine, and spirits, would you say it was, you know, love at first taste or what was was that like? Were you always um, drawn to that industry? I think the draw came from, you know, more than the taboo of underage drinking, it came more from, you know, this amount of ceremony that my family put behind Mm -hmm. trying new wines and the history and education. My parents, um, after leaving Playboy, my mom was an opening manager for a couple of really high profile restaurants in New York City, including Gotham Bar and Grill, which is just north of Washington Square Park. And just I love Gotham Bar and Grill. (laughs) Yeah. So she was a woman opening the restaurant, you know, doing all the hiring and training. Um, And my father worked in wine sales with a wine importer for a while and worked for uh, Leona Holmesley, who was a hotelier, um, ran the Park Lane. Leona owned the Park Lane Hotel. So you know, they had, they would take multi-month trips to Europe before they had kids. And so I think wine and food and beverage was more about, you know, the circumstances of when you're consuming it. It's about um, learning about the terroir in the sense of place, learning about connecting with people or, you know, hobby and education, not so much, um, even not so much even eating out because growing up in Pennsylvania, I mean, I think I had sushi twice before I moved to New York city. I was in a rural suburban area. So it was very, a very different cultural experience than um, if I had been raised in a New York city suburb. So, you know, I think that curiosity was always there, um, but it was, I don't know. It was a, it was a multifaceted interest in um in wine my parents like beer they like they love cooking but um, it really started as a passion for wine Mm, definitely i completely agree it's about the art behind creating the wine the beer the spirits and how it brings family and friends together um so what made you go back to school and get your mba So after um, graduating from college, I went to Bucknell in Pennsylvania, which is a very small liberal arts school, and, you know, quickly found myself looking for ways to be creative in a school that was very distanced from the cultural richness of a city like 
well, any city really. (laughs) Um, And so I had, I had become very um, interested in the music scene. I was a radio DJ in college. I had a column in the college newspaper. I was really interested in fashion, Um, did a lot of internships in New York city, ultimately graduating a semester early in January of 2009 during the, that financial crisis, um, you know, kind of paused my ability to get one of these, what I was hoping to get, which was a non-traditional role in, um, in an industry or a role adjacent to business because I had studied business undergrad. Um, I ended up getting a job at the Andrew Mellon Foundation, which is an endowment-based foundation here in New York City. And they donate uh, hundreds of millions of dollars a year to universities, libraries, and museums. So that job had a lot of meaning in terms of the impact that you know we as an organization were able to make. But it was kind of the opposite of business school, very paper-based, um, a pretty old school establishment. And I just, you know, a year and a half into it, I just knew that I really wanted to catapult my career forward. And in order to do that, I wanted to get an MBA and I wanted to go full time um, to career change. And at the time, I didn't even know exactly what I wanted to change into. I just knew I kind of wanted a chance to reset and explore um, the academic side of business and get my favorite part of undergrad was all of the experiential learning opportunities that I created for myself doing unpaid internships. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, And, you know, taking, I spent a couple of summers in New York city. So I was really excited to hopefully find an MBA program that I, where I could do the same thing, which is really, um, you know, stretch my skill set and explore my own passions while also having the security of getting a really amazing education um, in tandem with all of those things. Yeah, I'm curious if um, kind of going into the MBA, I know for me and Melanie, I have talked about this too. You don't, you kind of know what you're looking for, but you also have no idea what opportunities are going to be presented to you. Did you have like the sense that you wanted to explore working in spirits, wine, and beer? Or was that something that kind of came later, that inspiration after you got a a chance to kind of be exposed to different unpaid internships and all of that? I think the security of going to a great school like Stern gave me the excuse to be able to follow my passion in that industry. So I could do a consulting core project under the guise of getting managerial skills, but I could do it at a winery or with (laughs) a wine company um, or with a hotel. And, you know, I recruited for consulting um, my first year interned at PwC and had a full-time offer later on from PwC. So I was really, you know, those a lot of companies don't are a bit more agnostic as to the industry you're getting experience in. So I, it felt pretty indulgent and exciting to be able to actually work in industries that I cared about. But um, realistically, 
you know, coming from a pre-MBA job that was paying, you know, the New York City poverty level wage, um, I wanted to get the hardest, you know, most competitive job I could get in business school. And so I didn't really let myself consider, um, you know, recruiting for CPG companies or Diageo or a smaller company in the hospitality or food and beverage sphere. I kind of kept my eye on the prize trying to be as um, competitive as I could be for consulting recruiting. And when you were going through the recruiting, but then, you know, our second year kind of allows us to explore a little more about kind of these different projects. Did you have a sense that you would one day start your own business? I wanted to explore, but honestly, I, um, I think because I didn't have an idea, I didn't want to use so much of my course time in that area. Um, for me, I took Professor Oaken's Managing Growing Companies, amazing course. Uh, I took some classes that would end up being very useful for when I eventually started my own business, but that felt a little premature because I wasn't ready to do it myself. And again, I had this desire that was under the surface, but I didn't quite know how to channel it or what to do with it. And I was more focused on, um, I guess, building credibility in, in my own resume and my own experience. And so, you know, working in management consulting, I think a lot of people go into that industry because they look, they're not even looking at consulting. They're looking at the jobs that they can get in the future by getting mm -hmm. so much experience with a variety of projects, a variety of clients, um, and just the rigor of that profession versus, um, you know, it's, it's more, I think some people view it as a means to an end. Not everyone, of course. Um, I wasn't viewing it as a means to an end. I was just really excited to be up for the challenge of traveling and the fast pace. So it was somewhere under there, but it wasn't on my immediate horizon. And so then after consulting with PwC, you worked at Hopsy. And when was it that the idea for um, Talea Beer came about? So I, um, the summer after business school, I had my full-time role at PwC lined up and I knew I wasn't starting until September. So I actually pitched to Wolfer Estate, which is a winery in the Hamptons, to be um, a summer intern of sorts. And the general manager there is a Stern 2010 alum who also had worked in consulting post-MBA. So um, he agreed to bring me on board for the summer where I was kind of a jack of all trades. I did, I poured wine at tasting events. I um, did whatever was needed to help out around, uh, around the winery and the vineyards. Coming out of that experience, I learned a couple of important things that shaped my path for the next few years. One was that uh, if I was going to work in an industry like that, in a smaller company, I definitely wanted to be in leadership because, mm -hmm. um, you know, if it's a smaller company or a family run company and you're not part of that inner circle, 
uh, you're, you're executing someone else's vision and that's true of any small business and, you know, learning, gaining all the knowledge that I did at Stern, I knew that that might be, um, a little frustrating for me. Uh, I also came out of that experience with a hunch that there was an opportunity in the beer market for a sort of parallel business model to the winery model, because in craft beer, um, as few women as there are at the home of great wineries or wine brands, there are even fewer in the beer world. And so, you know, as a female consumer of beverages, um, a place like Wolfer has an amazing experience. They have beautiful packaging. They're a high touch environment and um, they're really creating a beverage tourism experience. And that just doesn't exist in beer or even in uh, hard alcohol. And so coming out of the summer, I had this kind of inkling that maybe there was an opportunity to transfer some of these uh, hallmarks of a winery experience to the beer world and feeling that um, as a female consumer, I don't see many beer products speaking to me. So that was um, kind of a, the kernel of the idea that ended up becoming our company from my, from my side versus my co-founder side. And I, I started at PwC and I had this, I still had this hunger to learn about beer. Um, I didn't start homebrewing till about a year later. So 2016, but in the interim, because I want, <laughs> I want Stern students to understand how nonlinear a path can be. I was actually, I love off. that. <laughs> I was laid off by PwC at the year-end assessments with under for a year of working there, um, which you know obviously put a wrinkle in my ideal trajectory. Um, but I ended up getting hired a couple of months later by a Sterney who had worked with me at PwC at the New York mm. Times. Um, so the Stern Network has served me, you know, with just with that example in Wolfer, I've gotten two opportunities out of the Stern Network. Um, and actually my, my boss at the Times who went to Stern is also an investor in our company, in Talaya Beer Company. Oh, so, wow. so I had, you know, I had consulting after working at Wolfer. I worked at the New York Times and then I left to work at this company, Hopsy, which you mentioned, which was a beer e-commerce startup. And I, I took that opportunity because I still couldn't shake the beer idea, but I wanted something that was lower risk than just jumping out there and doing it myself. So mm -hmm. um, that role, I was the head of customer experience at a small company. I was leveraging professional skills from Stern Consulting and the New York Times. So I felt that if it didn't work out and I ended up not pursuing beer, I could still explain that in my resume, um, which, you know, if you're risk averse like me, you always want to, you start thinking about your story and how it sounds to other people. And um, that felt like I could make that work in interviews. I love that so much, especially pointing out that it is so nonlinear and it can look very planned out on LinkedIn. Uh, but when you, pull back the curtain. It's anything but. I also love the name Talea. Um, and I know it's a combination of you and your co-founder's name. How did you both land on that? 
Um, the beer industry is surprisingly challenging for trademarks, but you know, it came down to thinking about the company we wanted to create and the imprint we wanted to make on the beer industry. We, we are two women. That's just factual. And knowing that a lot of companies, um, a, a lot of customers who we see as our target market, which is um, one of our target markets is millennial women. And um, they care about what a company stands for. They care about brand values. They want to connect with the brands, something like 50% of millennial women know the founders' names of their favorite company. So we wanted a name that was not tied to a sense of place, like Montauk Brewing is in Montauk, Brooklyn mm-hmm. Brewery is in Brooklyn. Um, and when we think about the broader vision for our company, we wanted something a bit more abstract that we could we could create the context around it. And so by combining my name with my co-founder Leanne's name, we sort of invented a word. It actually has other meanings in other languages, but um, it was just a first start. Uh, So Talea is also a rhythmic music term um, Mm. in English as, (laughs) and then in Italian, it's uh, a plant clipping that's less relevant, but, (laughs) um, you know, it's, there's a familiarity to the spelling and the cadence. The pronunciation is a a little more complicated, but I think that the benefits of having a brand that name that's untethered from, um, a geography or other strong connotations is really beneficial for us, especially because down the line, we see ourselves having multiple locations. And so being able to, you know, have, I don't know, a Talea Upper East Side or a Talea Westchester or something like that, or Talea Bridgehampton um, gives us a lot more options than some of the competitors in our space have a bit more straightforward or literal take on their brand name. So I believe you you made this brand with uh, your co-founder, Leanne, uh, while you're both still working at Hopsy. Can you just talk us through what that was like? Yes, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> so Leanne was already working at Hopsy as the head of finance. She had left Google working in finance um, operations to join Hopsy. And she was the person who I interviewed with the most in in joining Hopsy. So she was the head of finance. I was the head of customer experience. We, I started working there in April and being the only two women in the management team, which was really small to begin with. We, we would go to lunch together and, you know, happy hour. And we quickly realized that we had this common vision for a new type of brewery. And that's what had led both of us to leave our more stable jobs and careers to work for a really small startup in the beer industry. So once we realized that, hey, we want to do this, um, we had both given some thought to this idea of starting a brewery separately, but 
it quickly became, you know, every morning before work, every lunch, every evening, um, and most, most weekends, all Sunday of working on our company in stealth mode, because we, uh, we would not be a direct competitor to the company we were working at, but Leanne also has an MBA and a master's in finance. So, you know, we wanted to do everything right. And we wanted to really plan everything out. Um, we also knew enough about the industry to know that <laughs> permitting and other things involving the legal side of things were going to take a while. So we started working on the company in July and it took us until February the following year to have a line of sight into when we'd have our first product ready. So um, in that kind of nine month period of July, 2018 to April, 2019, we had our initial goal was just brew one batch of beer and get it into Whole Foods. That would be the Holy Grail. And we thought maybe we could do this at the same time as working a day job. But the more we started looking at how to, how the economics of beer work and how, um, the demands of a business and what it would take to actually get that product out there. And also started talking to people who had been in our position a couple of years ahead of us. Uh, we realized that the only financially viable path forward would be to build a brewery of our own that had a focus on tap room, the tap room experience. So we, yeah, we kind of took off running. We started using our own money to get the company going. Um, but around, you know, but from July to December, we probably had the realization that we needed to build a full-on business plan and build a brewery and we needed to start fundraising. And so in Martin, February, we gave notice and April um, 2019 was our last day at our full-time jobs. In that time period, we also hired a brewer who was working at Six Point in Red Hook, Brooklyn at the time. Um, and we launched like a week after we left our job, we timed it such that our first beer was ready to start being sold and we were ready to start fundraising in the month of April. That's incredible. I mean, I think one of the really interesting things about the beer, but also the brand for me is how accessible it is to a wider range of consumers. Um, I know that's a big point uh, that you and Leanne have both talked about, but I'm also really curious how, what did that process even look like when you're coming up with flavors, with ideas, and trying to find that thin line between something that is more accessible and still tastes like beer, but also tastes like something else? I think for us, it came from a, it started as a personal thing. Like I, I was into craft beer. I had been studying craft beer as a consumer uh, for, you know, a th three or four years. Well, even before Stern, but before I had an interest in it as an entrepreneur or potential entrepreneur, I had been um, trying to learn as much about the local players and, you know, the trends as I could from an outsider. And at the time when we would walk down, you know, this was pre 2018, I feel like brands like recess the CBD drink and 
some of the other millennial food brands, or I don't want to say millennial, but the branded brandless branded food brands, um, that aesthetic was popular in other industries like away luggage or outdoor voices. But the idea of having a really straightforward, great craft beer product, it just, there weren't many people doing that. So a brand like Montauk, I think is a great example of a, a company that is very accessible. They have pretty straightforward styles. They have pretty straightforward names, um, but they're not niche local craft. They, they have a different uh, place in the industry. And so when I would walk down the, you know, beer aisles, you just see a lot of sports influenced packaging or um, sometimes even sexist packaging, a lot of hyper-masculine dark mm -hmm. cans that have, you know, comic book characters on them. And I think for me and Leanne, it was just a desire to make the product more straightforward. And that's where the kernel of it started. But when we started doing more market research, um, we found that women are the fastest growing segment in craft beer. And the segment of women drinking craft is growing twice as fast as craft beer itself. And a lot of female craft beer drinkers, um, there's actually a Nielsen report that says 72% of female craft beer drinkers are frustrated by brands that treat them as an afterthought. So you have people already drinking craft beer, women already drinking craft beer, who don't feel that these brands are speaking to them. And so accessibility, because we're not only making beer for women to drink, we want everyone to enjoy it. But um, I think there's a lot of common threads that we tried to weave together to create our aesthetic and our voice. And one of those is making the packaging really digestible, making the flavor profiles, uh, something that has a little bit more familiarity and bridges the gap between what someone might think of as a super bitter, high alcohol beer uh, versus, you know, a strawberry margarita. And we think we can fit flavor <laughs> profile wise somewhere in between and that all of our beers have fruit forward aspects. Uh, they don't all have fruit in them, but the way we use hops, which are the most important input for us in terms of the um, aromatics and the flavor profile of our beers, we're using hops that have fruit notes. So, you know, we might put out a beer that we call tropical in flavor. It doesn't actually have tropical fruit in it, just like Rosé doesn't have strawberries in it. It just has mm -hmm. a, a note of strawberry. Um, but by using hops and layering those flavors, we can get a lot of uh, cocktail and wine-like flavor characteristics, which actually are these, the styles that we make are very popular in craft beer right now. Um, but I think because of the way a lot of craft beers are merchandised and the outlets at which they're sold, you know, they're kind of selling to the same consumer over and over again, which is an existing craft beer drinker. Whereas for us, we're really interested in the whole food shopper who, you know, has a full grocery cart and is only going to pick up one four pack. And maybe they see our cans and they wouldn't normally spend, you know, $18 on a four pack, but they're intrigued by the playful, bright aesthetic. And they can clearly see 
you know, what's the ABV? What's the style of the beer? I mean, you have tasting notes on the side of every can. Breweries are underrepresented in New York. So, you know, a place like Denver, Colorado might have 20 breweries for every 100,000 people. New York City has fewer than one brewery mm-hmm. for every 100,000 people. But there are still over 40 local breweries. So um, the market isn't saturated, but you still need to stand out. And that was a big component of, I think, why we were able to resonate with so many consumers as well as investors when we were fundraising. You guys have been making um, a lot of really great strides um, in a little bit over two years. In the process, has there been anything you've underestimated when having this new venture? I think we were very optimistic about fundraising and fundraising went really well for us. We raised over 2.1 million in a year from friends, family, and angels. And we have an SBA backed loan for almost another 2 million. Um, but I think we underestimated the resistance we found amongst more traditional investors. So we knew we weren't a venture capital deal. That's just, you know, with the amount of infrastructure that building a brewery requires, um, venture capitalists are looking for, you know, a product that they can take and get in every grocery store in America. And that's just not our business plan, but we did at pitch, pitch competitions, for example, um, one notable incident, my co-founder Leanne pitched and it was three or four older men um, providing the feedback and they said, oh, well, my wife doesn't drink beer. And then they had a conversation amongst themselves about why women don't drink beer and they ultimately decided that it was because of calories. And Leanne, a female beer drinker, is on the stage. She easily could have answered that question and could have explained why that's not true. Um, but <laughs> I think, you know, we didn't expect uh, that kind of impediment in terms of, um, you know, the bias towards the product market fit that they didn't see. When we living in New York City see women drinking beer all the time, um, mm-hmm. I think I also underestimated the impact that building a business would have on my personal life. I just was so excited to do my dream job and didn't necessarily, it was almost too scary to think more than six months ahead. Um, but obviously, quitting my job, having no salary for almost half of a year. And then now I'm on a a startup, a modest startup salary. Um, I was married when we started the company. I mean, I'm still married, but, uh, (laughs) but I think, you know, selfishly, I was just like, I know I need to do this. This is what's going to make me happy. And the arc of a company like ours is very long. We expect you know, we probably won't feel comfortable ever, but maybe three to seven years till we really have things figured out, Um, especially because construction is so expensive and so long. And um, like I mentioned, legal side of things. And with coronavirus, that's a whole other wrench being thrown in. But I didn't really, I think I underestimated the 
commitment that this company would require from people who aren't me, like my family and my spouse and, you know, their financial and emotional support. Um, but everything's, you know, we're, we're a couple of months into construction. We hope to open in March or April of next year. So the end is in sight. Uh, but it's not really the end because then you're running your business and that's a 24 seven job as well. Yeah. I know we're really excited about the tap room opening up, uh, next year in 2021. Uh, is there anything more you can share with us about that? Yeah, I can. <laughs> I, that's my favorite topic to talk about. Perfect. Um, <laughs> so it is, uh, our facility is in Brooklyn and Williamsburg. Um, we have a 9,000 square foot space that is uh, about a third dedicated towards the customer experience, the customer facing portion of the business, which is a tap room. I think a lot of people think of craft beer tap rooms as, you know, chalkboard, dark table, sticky table, sticky floor. Um, and that's a very charming side of a smaller brewery and smaller taproom experience. But for us, we really wanted to create something that's differentiated and inspired by wineries. So we have uh, been working with a team, an architect who's built a number of high profile restaurants and ice cream, Van Leeuwen ice cream shops, and then a general contractor who's worked with her on a number of restaurant um, and bar spaces. So, you know, it's not a typical brewery and taproom designer. It's really uh, texturally and aesthetically very different. Um, and then we also have about 6,000 square feet of that space dedicated to brewing. So probably one of the most expensive price per square foot to brew beer in the city. <laughs> um, but everything will be made on site. Uh, we are getting a pilot system, so we'll have experimental beers available. Um, we'll also be serving New York State wine and beer cocktails made with New York State liquors, as oh. well as a snack food menu of things like charcuterie plates and cheese plates. So um, I love that. I'm so excited about this. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's the pre-corona vision. Depending on how things go with uh, COVID-19's restrictions on indoor dining, we obviously our number one priority is the safety of our staff and our guests. But our ultimate vision is to have you be able to come do a tour of the brewery, taste a flight of beers with a beautiful cheese plate with edible flowers on it um, <laughs> and, you know, candied orange peel or whatever. And then uh, also just enjoy a casual taproom environment if that's what you're looking for. So we're a block south of McCarran Park. So we're really excited about the summer season as well, which will be here before we know it. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, it's, I, I can't wait to host Sternies there in the future. So to wrap things up, what is some advice you would have for individuals that are looking to start their own venture, start their own business? And what would you say to them? My number one piece of advice would be to find a co-founder. You know, it doesn't need to be an equal partner. Leanne and I are equal partners, but I think 
the tendency, especially for someone who's gone to a competitive program like Stern, is to want to do everything yourself and feel like, you know, I took, um, I took Demoterin's class. I can build a financial model or Godet's class. And I took strategy. I can build our strategy and <laughs> so on. But um, beyond the actual skill set, I just think the comfort of having someone else to go on the journey with you is so important. Uh, and eventually it will be very hard for you to, you won't be able to do everything yourself. And so being able to divide and conquer, uh, has been crucial for us when you fundraise, if you have a co-founder, you have double the networks of people to Mm -hmm. access for advice, for funding, um, for networking. And, you know, if you're a woman or a man who wants to eventually have a family and be able to not make the business your entire life, just the majority (laughs) of your life. Um, You are going to need to have other people you trust uh, to help you run that business. And so I think that's what I've told most people is um, also don't waste your time trying to become an expert in something that, that you don't already have that expertise in. So, you know, we could have, tried to come up with a beer recipe ourselves, both of us having brewed beer at home. The reality is that that's a very specialized skill. And I could see pre-MBA maybe telling myself, why don't I go to brewing school? But you can hire someone uh, as a consultant or as an employee or as an employee for equity or sweat equity. And that person can take that burden off of your shoulders and ultimately um, accelerate your path to success just by admitting to yourself that you can't be the expert in everything. That's great. Um, and it sounds like you and Leanne make a great team and we're so excited to come visit you hopefully in the spring of 2021. Um, but thank you so much, Tara, for being here with us today. We really enjoyed speaking with you. So we appreciate it. Yeah, it was my pleasure. This, um, this is an amazing opportunity to share my story. And I am so thankful for the community that Stern has given. I think it's so important to stay connected to the school and continue to engage because pretty much at every low point and some high points, um, other Stern classmates have helped me out or, or shaped my career. And um, that says a lot about the kind of community that we have and the, the dedication of alumni. So happy to be here. And uh, yes, would love to host you guys in the spring and hopefully um, host some of the Stern Clubs on site at the brewery. Um, Definitely. Yeah, awesome. thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.